Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. We're broadcasting live today from 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia. Recent podcasts are available from iTunes and the Freedom of Species website and, of course, the 3CR 855 AM website. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend. As the world is waking up to the cruelty and destructive consequences of industrial animal agriculture. Do the proposed Victorian planning laws give the green light for more of it? And will they make it harder for us to oppose such facilities in our own backyards? We welcome to the studio today, firstly, Sarah Davison from Planning for Animals. Thanks, Emma. Uh, Sarah, can you tell us a bit about Planning for Animals? Emma, yeah, I'm a town planner. I've been practicing as a town planner for 20 years or so and I currently work for myself as a planning consultant but I also have a strong interest in in animal issues. Uh, So I've been the last few years I've been looking at um, animal advocacy from a planning perspective. Excellent and we also are joined by Lisa Ryan. Um, Lisa ran a successful campaign that resulted in a rejection for a large intensive piggery to house I think it was 22 or 25,000 individual pigs is that right Lisa are you there yes hello um, and thank you for the opportunity to be here the development application was for an intensive piggery in the hilltop shire and it was 22,000 uh, pigs uh, for breeding and growing it was actually two developments rolled into one. Thanks for joining us today. Lisa actually has a couple of hats on today. Later on, she will tell us about a new bill to be introduced through the New South Wales Parliament uh, regarding uh, mandatory CCTV in abattoirs. That's later on in the program. Before we zone in on the local context of intensive animal agriculture, at uh, the big end of town, so to speak, I thought we'd firstly discuss the, the global issue of this animal factory farming, highlighted beautifully in an article uh, by B.B. Van Der Zee, uh, titled Why Factory Farming is Not Just Cruel But Also a Threat to All Life on the Planet. And the tagline was, It's time the world woke up to the real impact of modern industrial farming, uh, says Philip Limbry. Head of Compassion in World Farming and author of Farmageddon, Farmageddon sorry, and The Dead Zone. Um, I thought I'd start with Sarah first. What, what struck you about that, you know, that article and what, what this actually means, this style of agriculture? Uh, yes, Emma, I, 
it was a it was a great article, and uh, Philip Limbury's book Farmageddon was um, very much along those lines that the the environmental destruction um, resulting from animal agriculture is just I mean it's sort of beyond what anyone could imagine. Uh, I'm, myself, I've always looked at animal agriculture f- more from the cruelty perspective. Um, but I think this this recognition that it really is an environmental disaster with global impacts is probably going to reach out to a broader um, section of people who are who are worried about the future and worried about the planet. Um, and it, it's finally sort of highlighting that this is really one of the main causes of, of environmental degradation. Mm. Yeah. Um, the article was published on the eve of a, a conference in London, uh, Livestock and uh, Extinction uh, is the title of the conference, and I think there's 200 scientists there. Uh, also the big animal ag company, uh, food companies are there, Tesco, McDonald's, what have you. But uh, what struck me was he, Philip Limbury wanted to really bring the focus of a joint a joint global cooperation on this issue and not an ice all these separate isolated issues so the um, maybe an isolated environmental issue to do with um, intensive industries in each country but to join it all together as this is a really the heart the kernel of a really destructive um, system uh, Lisa do you have anything to add to what what was the big highlight from reading that article? Um, I, like Sarah, um, thought it was a wonderful article and very timely. There's been a couple of follow-up articles along the same lines that have been published over the last week. And um, I guess what was important for me was that these sort of articles and these sort of conferences are bringing the world and a whole range of players together and I think that's very important because to tackle anything like animal agriculture on large scale uh, with a large scale focus you do need to involve all of the players so that it's the banks it's the producers it's the local communities it's the environmental people um, it's the health people and I think those that have followed this sort of issue for a number of years are well aware of the the devastating environmental impact and that if the world doesn't wake up, there won't be much left that we need to be advocating for. But I think the other important thing is that um, the environmental impacts link into human health issues and how what we're providing and the, the land use for growing crops to feed these animals is taking away from the human population around the world who are starving um, and need these same food crops in these same areas to, to feed the human population as well. Yeah, it's quite so startling. I think, yeah, yeah. Isn't it? Sorry to interject there, but I think it, 4 billion, that's the stats, 4 yes. billion people can be fed from the acreage that is currently used to grow grain to feed animals in factory farms. I mean, animal advocates know this, but this is like a world health issue, isn't it? It's a world yeah, it is. population. It yeah, is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, and then all the other links to that in terms of when you start um, 
ploughing these fields and growing these crops to feed animals, which humans are then eating, you're also having this massive impact on biodiversity. So it's not just the humans and the animals raised and raised for slaughter. It's also a whole lot of other animal species that are impacted because the land is being taken, their homes are being destroyed, loss of habitat. So it goes on and on and on. Mm. And, of course, one other thing, um, the largest dead zone um, in the ocean has been found, I think, just this year, it states, in the United States. And the major contributor um, is the runoff from the um, intensive farms uh, in America. Yeah. So, look, there's all kinds of things, isn't there? There's the water is meant to be, you know, worth as much as gold, some are saying. So it's like, you know, the water costs to keep animal agriculture going in any context, whether it be intensive animal production or otherwise, from the farm to the slaughterhouse, we, we really can't afford to be using water in that inefficient, that inefficient way. Um, okay, well, let's like zoom in now back to the local uh, part of the program and talk about the new proposed planning laws in Victoria. So firstly, Sarah, can you tell us about how these laws are actually mapped according to different zones and give us a little history, a little 101 lesson on <laughs> on how what that planning law speak is based on or um, mapped from? Yeah, sure, Emma. Uh, so they apply to the... Well, they apply to different zones. Every piece of land in Victoria... Um, is belongs if you like to a planning scheme for each uh, each council local government area, um, and within a planning scheme you've got the state government sections, and then you've got um, your local policies. Now the state government have have altered, or they're proposing to alter some of the provisions relating to uh, to animal agriculture. Uh, so these apply statewide, and. It, depending on which zone you were in, now you might be in the farming zone, green wedge, rural living, industrial, um, these provisions dictate what you can and cannot do. Now the reforms change, they've introduced some different definitions, they've uh, provided some exemptions and yeah, I can talk a bit more about those. Excellent. So the definition of because we're concentrating on the industrial animal agriculture intensive farm system today the definition of this style of farming in planning law speak is literally where the animal's food is coming from is that right that's right so the current definitions are either extensive animal husbandry which is your sort of grazing cattle if you like or intensive animal husbandry And for intensive animal husbandry, the way the definition is worded is most of the food is imported from outside the enclosure. Now, this has proved problematic on numerous occasions and uh, some of the listeners may be familiar with the Murrindindi case and the Wagyu beef. Um, There was a, a beef farmer, David Blackmore, who was farming his animals um and basically a, a new neighbour complained to council. He got caught up in this this great red tape, if you like. They asked him to apply for a, an intensive animal husbandry permit because he was, um, at some times of the year, he was importing mo- most food, if you like. Um, he ended up... So that's what really triggered 
it got a lot of press. There was a Neil Perry petition, etc. He was obviously a, a foodie darling. Mm-hmm. Um, and this really triggered the review by the Andrews government. Um, there was a separate decision around a free-range pig farm that a VCAT member actually defined this most food as more than 50%. Um, so that's more than 50% of the grain or whatever you're feeding your animal? Well, she complicated it even further to say 50% of the nutritional value for the animals um, was coming from outside the enclosure. Now, most council planners are not equipped to <laughs> make those sorts of assessments. So, Which means people go into these properties all the time and... Yeah. yeah, and Getting so farmers didn't quite know what was expected of them, what the rules were, I suppose. Um, so the reforms are, are largely around providing clarity um, in that respect. Now, So that's kind of fair enough, sorry to interrupt, mm. because, I mean, even if you've got a sanctuary, so to speak, or you've got a certain amount of animals that need to be fed, to have... Um, you know, if, if you've got cows out there, you will need to, if, if there's drought or you will need to import, get the feed from elsewhere at times of the year. That's right. One day and the next day not. Yeah. So the definition, I suppose, was had become out of date and the way that farming is now, um, things needed to change. Yeah. Um, But what... So what the government is now proposing with the reforms is um, some new definitions. So they've, they've done away with those two definitions I just mentioned and they're interestingly have changed the language from animal husbandry to animal production which I think says a lot and and probably goes towards the industrial nature of animal agriculture that we find today Um, and they've introduced something called grazing animal production which is, is more that extensive animal husbandry so it's for grazing cattle primarily um and that requires the way they've worded it is daily has the opportunity to graze browse or forage on a daily basis now one of my concerns with this this way is that who who's who's going to check you know these animals could quite easily be um, contained in sheds uh, without a permit because they fall under this definition supposedly but in actual fact you know, they're not grazing daily, but it's a convenient way of farmers being able to um, to to farm without a permit, potentially. Uh, and then the other, for the more intensive, they've created um, intensive animal production and then they've separated out pig farm and poultry farm. So the, all the, it's a whole suite of changes that sort of all work together to um, basically make it easier for small to medium-scale farmers uh, to farm intensively. Right. So it seems to me there needed to be a lot of clarity mm. for farmers because there's a push for industrial-style farming. Um, one, because a lot of land is not available anymore. Is that one push? I think I read somewhere that there's a lot of... There's not the acreage for farmers to literally buy more land to keep more free-range stock. Is that... Yeah, I think I think that would certainly be the case, and um, and just with our population growth in Melbourne, you've got the the urban fringe just pushing out ever more. Um, I mean, there was an example of a, a broiler farm proposal. They were actually this this one over in is it Gippsland was actually servicing a 
the Ingham's Hatchery in Somerville, which is down where I live on the peninsula, but there's just no land that's affordable on the peninsula anymore for new new farms to establish. So, yeah, there's definitely a shortage of affordable land for this sort of farming. Yeah. Um, and then you have a lot of hobby farmers, tree change people who... Um, are understandably going to be annoyed with amenity impacts like dust, odour, noise. Yeah. So there's that pressure coming from them as well. You referred to the last week there was a decision by the South Gippsland Shire Council. They rejected the 400,000 chicken broiler shed. A broiler chicken is a chicken um, produced for meat being built in Warreen. Now, the, the, a lot of activists um, got their act together and brought about that rejection from council. That, that's a 400,000... Yeah, it's great. ..chicken it's a, individuals in a, in a shed. Yeah, um, it's a great win. Yeah, it's a great win, but as you were saying, they're looking for the land and these very big end-of-town companies are looking mm. to really push these um, facilities off the ground at the moment. So... Yeah, it's up to everyone to be diligent. And and the, and the facilities still need, for, from a business perspective, I gather, need to be within certain distances of the processes, um, the abattoirs, etc. So, you know, there are obviously certain parts of Victoria that are far more appealing than others just in terms of distance. Mm. Mm. You are on 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show, and we've started to talk about the new proposed planning laws when it comes to animal agriculture uh, in Victoria around industrial animal agriculture. Um, we're also joined by Lisa Ryan by phone, um, successful campaigner for stopping a very large intensive piggery from opening in Harden, New South Wales. Um, So we know that there's a lot of um, many farmers, landholders and free-range individual animal uh, farmers are actually against these laws as well. Um, And I thought we'd go, we'd just revisit why they're against and why anyone wouldn't want these facilities in their backyard. Um, Let's cover those issues you mentioned, like as far as amenity is concerned. Um, yes, I mean, any of these proposals, they they have impacts on neighbouring properties. Now that can range from truck movements um, to, you know, remove the chickens, um, odour. There's, there's always complaints about, um, you, you know, effects to water around the site. So often you'll find... Um, Objectives to these new intensive proposals are other farmers concerned about their land, their business and, and effect, environmental effects directly from these um, farms. Now, I think um, in addition to that, with these new reforms, um, the sort of big ag lobby, if you like, are a bit concerned that it gives a free ride to some of the, the smaller medium producers. So it's, um, you know, a smallish number of pigs will be able to... Um, be farmed intensively without a permit. Um, wow, wow. Yes. So that's a new one, is it? So wow. this is a change. So previously where a pig farm was an intensive animal husbandry always needed a permit, the government's now saying, look, if, you're, if your f- land is a certain size, you have a certain number of pigs and it sort of ranges from two to the various sort of um, calculations, but two to eight, let's say, um, sows, um, and then one boar, you know, there's various um, 
Num- numbers. <laughs> various numbers. And you're set back from neighbouring properties, you know, certain amount, let's say 100 metres, I think it is, you can set up without a per- without a planning permit. So that's an as it becomes an as of right use in certain zones like the farming zone. So that that's much easier than... Um, for for the larger operators who need to go through the planning process. So I think you were you were mentioning before the program that um, so now someone can set up a an industrial animal agriculture facility um, if you've got eight sales or up to eight sales or two hundred chickens. And mm. you were saying that someone could literally do that now in Dandenong if they wanted to under these new proposed laws. Is that correct? Well, they could do it. Um, Without a permit? No, in a in an agricultural zone, they could okay. do it without a permit. Um, but the industrial um, and a change to the industrial zone means that that you can now set up um, some of these enterprises in in with a permit where they were previously prohibited uses. So it it it, it does pave the way for um, intensive farming in industrial areas potentially. Now again, that will. You know, cost of land will play into that, but um, I, that was an interesting change from these reforms. I found certainly that this, the, our traditional view of land use is changing, and um, for the government to say, "Oh, yes, it's okay to potentially have a piggery in Dandenong," uh, is in, interesting. Certainly, yeah. So it, it does give the green light for this terribly cruel way of of farming. Yes, yes, definitely, and it's in, it's yeah. I mean, that's the message. It's encouraging intensive farming, certainly of pigs and poultry, um, which is a concern. You've also mentioned uh, that when it comes to planning law, there's no um, recognition of the psychological and social impacts. Can you elaborate on that for me? Uh, Yes, I've I've looked into this previously, Emma, because, um, you know, with my work of, well, how can... How can an animal advocate act um, to try and prevent this type of development? Uh, now, planning law doesn't allow for any consideration of animal welfare issues. So that's basically off the table. When you object to one of these proposals, I mean, I encourage people certainly put down animal welfare as an issue, but the planner cannot actually consider it as part of their assessment because it's not it's not legitimate ground planning grounds. It doesn't exist in the planning scheme if you like. Um, Now there is a section of the planning scheme that then refers to a section of the Act that allows for social effects or social impacts to be considered when in any assessment of a planning application. Um, A recent change was the Act was actually changed by our current government to allow for um, the number of objectors to be considered as part of assessing whether there was a significant social effect or not. Now, this arose because a McDonald's was set up in the hills in a town in, called Tacoma, um, despite immense community opposition, uh, and this this was basically in response to that, so that there was an avenue to address this kind of huge opposition. Now, um, whether that could, could work in an intensive animal scenario remains to be seen. Um, there's only been one recent sort of, they're called red dot decisions at VCAT that sort of a precedent, if you like, um, relating to this significant social effect issue and it related to an apartment building. And basically the tribunal tribunal member said, look, I need more evidence. It's not enough just to all object and then say you're affected. Um, So I just see that as a a bit of an avenue. This is how potentially people could argue 
um, that an intensive um, animal farm is mm. f- is having a social impact on them. Mm. I mean, it's obvious because no one wants them in their backyard. I mean, even farming communities mm. do not want these facilities in their own backyard. In fact, there was quite a well-known um, case in Kurnow, Gippsland, Victoria, where there was an intensive dairy feedlot kind of situation, a thousand cows. That application was refused. And in actually the the president of the Victorian Farmers Federation in an article by Laura Paul of the ABC said in response to that, that Bass Coast Council has made that decision because that council is predominantly a lifestyle farming zone. The area was rural zoned, but they've based their decision that way. So yeah, I think it's just getting back to no one. So the psychological and social impacts are very real. People don't want these facilities. They are, but that... I mean, in that case, I know the the Bass Coast Council. I mean, the community was up in arms. There, it was very widespread. Lots of media. Um, the councillors made that decision, but the grounds they had to use were things like visual impact of the actual barn, yep. Um, yep. and probably a few different environmental impacts. So, in that case, it was a matter of a community agitating, getting in their councillors' ears. The councillors made the decision against the proposal, um, perhaps for reasons that weren't exactly the reasons why everyone opposed it, if that makes sense. Um, And that one, as far as we know, hasn't gone to VCAT, but if it was tested, it would potentially get approved. And you're saying that even though a lot of places um, could get a permit, Mm. that often if they go to VCAT, Victorian Civil and... um, Administrative tribunal. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah. Then that's often overruled by the big end. Yes, um, because town. because counts in most cases council laws. So the elected representatives are the ones who make the decisions on the big, you know, the controversial applications, and they're human. They make the decision because people are in their ear. Um, now that may or may not be a decision made on proper planning grounds at VCAT. It will be made on proper planning grounds. So can we also? I know that this is all complicated people, but it's really worthwhile really paying attention. You also mentioned now with... Okay, so now you're allowed to open up an operation basically without a permit. And what does that have to do with the advertising part of the process? I think you mentioned if you advertise... So so normally and in the past, intensive farms required a permit. So the, applica- the farmer was the applicant. They applied to council for a planning permit for the, for the use um, of a piggery. Uh, a small-scale piggery. Yeah. Yep. Uh, that would then be advertised to the surrounding neighbours and it's put on public exhibition. Anyone in the world can, or anyone in Australia could object to it. Um, so the, the reforms have basically said for these certain types of farms, which are generally small scale that meet certain conditions, you don't, some of them you don't need a permit, others you still need to apply for a permit, but we won't be advertised, there are no third party appeal rights, which means it's just up to the council to, just, to make that decision mm-hmm. and, um, and so, no one else has any say, basically. So if, you, if they advertised... Mm. Then they have no appeal rights. Well, it, would, it wouldn't even get advertised. So, um, so a normal a normal permit is advertised. People yep. can object, and then if the decision's not what they like, they can appeal it to VCAT. In this case, it's never even advertised, so there is no objection. There is no third party process. So once they 
council have approved it. It's done. It's done and there's nothing you can do and you never saw it advertised. Exactly. And then the next thing you know, it's bobbed up next door. So it's, yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen how this might play out. Um, and that really depends on how well they've structured these sort of conditions and setbacks and things. Wow. I can, I can see how they'd want clarity around certain issues, but this opens opens it up for some... Yeah, serious amenity issues, yeah. I think. Let's just go back, and I just wondered, Lisa, if you could chime in here, with um, yeah, all these other issues that happen when you do um, have one of these facilities around. We mentioned, okay, noise, traffic, roads double v you know massive trucks going up and down your street uh water usage um you can also have the fact you can use basically the potential of that land to be used for tourism and that being a good thing is that right if you're objecting against one of these facilities is that right Uh, Lisa? uh, yeah absolutely with the um land tire farms piggery uh campaign we run like Sarah, we recognised that we were going to be limited in the types of objections we put forward to council, but under New South Wales planning legislation, council, as the consent authority, were limited in what they could accept as a reasonable or a valid objection because they were assessing objections against state laws, but also the local council laws uh, that, uh, like in Victoria, have different parcels of land for intensive farming, farming, um, residential, etc. So they were hamstrung in terms of what they could look at. So we had to, from the outset, um, consider how we were going to compile our objections so we thought as animal advocates we absolutely needed to be a voice for the animals so we divided objections into three main banners and that was the animal issues, the environmental issues and the people impact issues and under the people impact issues we spoke about things like public interest which council does need to consider but anyone who's been through a process of objecting to a development application would know that public interest often doesn't get a huge amount of attention from a local council, and particularly in a rural area where councillors may in fact all be farmers themselves, may not be across the huge range of very complex issues Um, Even in some rural councils, you have planning staff that may not be across some of the very specialised areas. And in this case, we got down to soil analysis and how deep was the groundwater. So, but when we spoke about public interest, we did bring into play odour, amenity, noise, dust road usage, uh, road safety, but we also spoke about the impact on the local community in terms of tourism is going to be the long-term venture where this community makes money and all of the work and all of the investment that has been going into linking this area with Canberra and other major tourism spots. 
um, and how it was a contradiction in terms to have a pocket of intensive animal agriculture versus tourism, that people that you're trying to attract along the tourism route were not going to be attracted to an area where you had intensive animal agriculture dotted across the landscape. Mm. So very, very important to argue those sort of things, but very important to zoom in on what you know council must assess, uh, where they need to make their decisions, and really put most of your energy into what are going to be the big ticket items, and that includes things like water runoff, um, noise, pollution, um, uh, use of public roads, and how this impacts not only the immediate neighbours, and in this case we had a group of about 80 immediate neighbours who were all pretty united in their objections to this particular piggery, but also include the community as stakeholders and explain to them in easy-to-understand terms how these sort of intensive operations will impact them. Um, and so it came down to determining, well, how far would the odour spread? Would it actually reach the township as well? Um, if the water was contaminated, how would that impact the local community, not just the immediate neighbours? So we had to think from a very broad perspective in terms of how are we trying to explain very complex information so that people understand how it would impact them day to day. A lot of the proponents of the larger end of town, industrial animal agriculture, will put, you know, well, your rural town needs this. This area needs this for the economy yep. and for, um, you know, jobs. That's the old yes. one that gets dragged out. And it's I, I know that, um, for instance, the in the case of the Warreen broiler chicken shed, 400,000 chickens would be in the sheds and on farm it was only two and a half more jobs supplied to the area mm. um, and that was a basis for the rejection. So often the larger the the intense, the more intense the farming, obviously the less employment. Have you got anything to add, Lisa, there? Yes, well, employment, uh, particularly in um, my immediate area, which is rural, where employment opportunities are limited, was a big push from the applicants in this case, but also from um, groups like, um, you know, the Pork Industry Association and the local New South Wales Farmers Federation saying, well, for goodness sake, you know, this is a country area. This is what happens in country areas. Farms have been around since Adam was a boy. So what we did was look at the 20 or so jobs that the the applicant continued to push, saying this is really important, there aren't any jobs in this area. And we kept, continued to challenge those jobs along the lines of they hadn't been validated, that the number of 20 that kept coming up, we kept saying, well, how have you determined 20 jobs? And we know from past examples that these jobs really aren't long-term and the more industrialised these operations become, the less jobs are available and how healthy are they. And then putting it back to the community with things like, uh, would you want your children working in these environments where there are 
um, a whole lot of downsides where they're low paid, long hours. Wouldn't you prefer that your children and grandchildren were working in tourism type operations? Isn't that what you know, our decision makers and our planners should be encouraging in rural areas real long-term sustainable employment. So we just sort of kept turning it around and saying, well, consider this, what is best for the people that hold these jobs? How long do they have these jobs? Are they getting any skills from these jobs? Could they move from the area and take on a similar job elsewhere? So we were just questioning things and raising doubts in what was coming forward and that has some success but limited success because in rural areas employment is a huge issue and the opportunities uh, in my local area are often working in one of these facilities or working in one of the local slaughterhouses. There aren't a lot of other choices. So you have to encourage the decision makers and the long-term planners at local level and at state government level to be thinking about and saying, well, rural people deserve better opportunities and it's up to you to help make them happen. Mm-hmm. Lisa, could I just, Sarah here, could I just ask you a little bit more about your campaign? Um, it sounds extremely well, well executed and you've really pushed and gone into detail. Did you and the other objectors end up sort of engaging outside experts to um, provide reports and push back to council. And could you um, just let me know? I couldn't quite find out what stage is it up to. Well, um, the application was rejected by council. Um, It was a 19-month battle, Sarah, Mm -hmm. um, and and it consumed seven days a week. Um, And we started out looking at, uh, and it was three rounds of public exhibition. It wasn't just one round. So we all became aware um, shortly before Christmas two years ago that the applicant who already operates an intensive piggery in the next region. Yes. um, So, and uh, has an extended family who run similar ventures and had been for a number of years where applications had gone in, they'd all been approved um, and had continued to run. So there was this history we were immediately up against and a very well-known applicant um, who is, you know, on board to various farming-type enterprises. So a very well-known person with a lot of money to spend um, who had already had a voice in the media. So... Um, initially we were thinking, well, you know, this was a million to one shot of, of us being successful, but we thought we will be able to get animal issues on the agenda. So we started out uh, working out that we did need to look at animals, environment and people to have any chance of success. We then um, pulled apart the applicants first Uh, environmental impact statement and went through it line by line and thought we need to get the public on board here. So we launched the campaign through social media and I then engaged with our local media and because it was probably a little bit controversial, they actually took an interest. So over 19 months, we had probably every fortnight we were able to put a story out 
raising different issues about the animal issues and the husbandry and the cruelty and the abuse, um, about the applicant and the history, a lot of which had been exposed on the Aussie Farms website. So we had a lot of actual footage and real-time information that we could provide the community that couldn't be questioned. And we used social media very successfully and ran um, an electronic petition. But with that electronic petition, we were able to use it as pushback against council. So we ended up with something like 32,000 signatures on our petition and we use that petition as an objection on its own mm. to simply say this is the public interest. This is how people across New South Wales and around Australia feel about these type of operations. But we then worked in with Animal Liberation, the Animal Defenders Office, um, supported by some very good lawyers. Um, I spoke with a lot of very, very experienced planning staff across different councils where these sort of operations had gone up to see the strengths and the weaknesses of each uh, environmental impact statement. And I met with council every couple of weeks for 19 months so that I could stay up to date with what they were thinking, what they were looking at, and just keeping on top of what was going on. Now, with this particular application, it was both an integrated and a designated development, which meant it went beyond the local council. So even though they were the final consent authorities, state government authorities, including um, the uh, EPA, had a role in three particular licences had to be provided. So we were also for 19 months, liaising with these government departments about where they are at and looking at the weaknesses. So every time we uh, there was a public exhibition period, we harnessed a whole lot of uh, public support and council were flooded with objections. And because it was so such a complex development application, we provided templates to the public which we and a whole lot of other animal advocacy groups shared for us which encouraged people to provide objections that they knew were accurate um, and were on target in terms of what council needed to assess and in all of those things we included public interest and we included the animal issues and the welfare issues but we also really zoomed in on the environmental issues, the impact to the local neighbours um, who were running their own campaign and they would one fortnight come out about the odour issues and then the next fortnight we would come out about the odour issues on the wider community. Right. So, yeah, even though we were sort of, I guess, on slightly different sides of the fence, we were basically on the same side in terms of we all wanted the application to be rejected. Yeah. So when we got to the third round of public exhibition, council had had a total of close to 5,000 objections all up. And during that process, when council, who did have very good and experienced planners, agreed that the information 
was so complex they needed to call in independent specialists. So a, a special panel was put together where they reviewed the applicant's various environmental impact statements and the objections and they went through line by line. So by the time council did the final determination, we'd had two state government departments that had said no to issuing permits um, out of three, which is pretty good. We only needed one to say no, but we ended up with two saying no very conclusively. Um, and we also had council as the final consent authority saying no. Definitely the, no. <laughs> yeah, and the, and the summary of that was a quite extraordinary uh, standalone council meeting where that announcement was made. So it was a special meeting just for this application. And in the days leading up to that, we had an all-day public forum event where just for this application. So members of the community could speak. I spoke on behalf of our campaign. We had Mark Pearson from the Animal Justice Party come down and speak in support, in support of our campaign mm. and a number of the immediate neighbours. So everybody got to say their last few sentences um, and it was a very interesting play out of local democracy happening mm. and the conclusion was a campaign that nobody at the outset would have thought we had a, hope, a snowflakes hope of winning we actually won and won very very conclusively yeah, yeah. it's interesting um because even though you're in new south wales and we've been talking earlier about the victorian planning laws um i guess by by nature it's very, you know obviously similar but i just wonder just briefly sarah given the success of all of you know we heard about that fantastic campaign blocking this style of farming will the new laws make it harder to block these sheds from your area uh, yes, well, certainly the, these these small to medium scale farms will you basically won't know about them. So they will be going through without um, potentially without permits. They'll just be setting up, mm. you know, legally without permits um, or without notification. Um, so the public doesn't know about them. Mm. Um, something of the scale of of Blantyre Farms certainly will still require planning permission um, and. Yeah, so th anything large, really significant, will still be going through this process. And, um, yeah, I did want to make the point that the, the Planning and Environment Act allows for, it specifically says that any anyone can object who will be affected by the proposal or words to that effect. So um, people should never feel that they can't object and that their objection won't count. Uh, anybody can object um, and certainly councils place more importance on um, immediate neighbours, people in that town. But my view is that if, if people consistently and in large numbers object to these types of proposals, that's still sending a message that this is yeah. not okay yeah. and this goes back to, in uh, Lisa's case, they're calling it public interest in New South Wales. Here it would it's this social effect concept. So there is this move towards... Um, government needs to consider these sort of uh, intangible effects. Um, now, yeah, so it's all, always worth putting, putting yeah. that stuff in. So are you saying now to object, can people actually object to these new planning laws? Um, uh, yes, so yep. they're currently on exhibition and um, 
basically if you if you Google planning sustainable in animal industries Victoria, it will take you to the the government page, um, and you can put in a submission until the fourteenth of November on these reforms. Um, so people might like to talk about the fact that it basically, yeah, like you say, green lights, intensive farming at a small scale. Mm. So the without... bullet points would be that it, it, we, yeah. we, we object because <clears throat> it's green lighting, small scale industrial farming. Industrial farming is, and we can use yeah. a few of the things. Yeah, we spoke it's about. allowing yeah intensive farms without um, without third party rights. I suppose. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. It's also it's also government supporting expansion of industrialised farming, Mm. which is not good for anybody. And um, I'd also be talking about um, the rights of the majority over the rights of the big end end of town, you know, the the powerful, very wealthy um, industries. Um, Maybe Sarah and I should do some templates for people in Victoria. Yeah, that's right. That sounds good. Yeah, certainly, because they, um, like Lisa explained with her campaign, you you need to have your objection covering off on these points that the planner can actually look at. And then I would always add animal welfare myself. Yes. Yeah. Um, but they, they basically discount that. They just go, oh, that's not relevant. But, uh, yeah, your objection to, to have any sort of impact must cover... Yeah. Yeah. Planning grounds. Um, just just on the the animal welfare consideration, with um, because the Blantyre farm application was both integrated and designated, and there were three government agencies involved. One of them was the Department of Primary Industries, who had to, who also at that time before the department was split, had to look at water and had to provide um, a licence for the drilling of water from the underground levels. And so they had to provide a licence, but they also, under the state planning laws, had to look at animal welfare. Now, um, so it was a consideration Department of Primary Industries had to look at, and even though there was a huge number, like nearly 5,000 objections, which all made mention of the animal welfare issues, the Department of Primary Industries didn't, in fact, look at, they didn't follow the requirements and they didn't look at animal welfare. They provided no response back to the local council in terms of they'd assessed the objections, this was their view. Um, They just stick to, has the applicant covered off that they will adhere to various codes of practice with the housing and the keeping and the breeding of pigs. Mm. Um, So even where you have animal welfare as a mandatory consideration, it doesn't always mean that governments which are supporting um, the increase and the expansion of farming and industrial farming will always consider it. So it, it can be, you know, the animal welfare issues, you do need to raise them, but at this stage... Governments aren't inclined to give them um, the serious time. assessment that they deserve and and should be getting. It's mm. very difficult. You are listening to three CR eight double five AM, the Freedom of Species Show, and I might just stop that discussion there because I just want to give a couple of minutes, and I hope that's enough, Lisa, for you to put yep. your other hat on as um, yes. convener yep. of the Animal Justice Party. Would you like yep. to tell us about the new propo- the bill to be? 
uh, proposed in the New South Wales Parliament? Um, one one of the roles I have at the moment is convener of the Animal Justice Party in New South Wales, and that involves working with our elected MLC, Mark Pearson, um, and who is continuing to raise a range of animal issues in the New South Wales Parliament. A bill that will be coming up hopefully in the next month or two uh, is titled The Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Amendment, Stock Animals Bill. And what this bill will be proposing is mandatory CCTV cameras in all slaughterhouses um, and mandatory installation of fire sprinklers in intensive operations and the installation of remote monitoring system in those same operations. So while we've got this push by state government to expand intensive factory farming, um, there are also a whole lot of uh, moves in play where parties like the Animal Justice Party are trying to, I guess, increase the protections available for animals that while these types of operations are being approved at local government and state government level that we can counter them to some degree by saying, okay, well, the animals need some protections. How can we improve these protections? So because we've had so many industrial fires where huge amounts of animals have been trapped in these sheds, unable to escape and have literally suffocated or burnt to death, the Animal Justice Party through Mark Pearson's office thought, well, this is at least one bill that can provide an increase in the protections offered to these animals. So um, it's a very, very important bill and the Animal Justice Party will be running a campaign around that to provide consumer awareness and gain and harness support so that we can get it up. I suppose it's all about awareness, isn't it? And knowing that a lot of animals do die in these horrific... They're going to die a horrific death, but the various um, ways of um, horror in an industrial factory farm can actually mean, and especially in these days of increased bushfires, the Australian National University brought out more research that we're going to have 50 degree days in Melbourne um, within the decade. So it's like, well, why are we breeding these animals for protein when it's just so super inefficient? But in such an environment, it it doesn't really make sense. There's a much clever way to go and we know that there are much more clever ways to get your protein. Um, Also, did you, you did mention the mandatory CCTV in that Bill, is that right, Lisa? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's interesting how in the UK they they're going to phase that in over there, and there's always already been a big, um, you know, apparently about thirty percent of abattoirs in the UK have refused to hand over their footage of the kill floor to um, the vets over there. So it's obviously they're hiding something. So yeah. Yeah. That's look, I, I think I, I mean the Animal Justice Party believes that. Um, these sort of monitoring devices um, should be part of, you know, being built into normal business operational costs and it is better for these uh, operators to be as transparent to the public and their consumers as possible. So, 
uh, I guess there will be a resistance on terms of what what this will cost them. But there's also an increasing level of public pressure because we have had various cases where horrific cruelty in slaughterhouses has been exposed and the recent footage that came out from the Tasmanian slaughterhouses is, is just one example um, where advocates will argue that these aren't isolated incidents, that these this type of cruelty and abuse towards animals, um, even at the point of slaughter, is happening, you know, on a much more common basis yeah. than the slaughterhouses would admit to. Um, and I guess the, the argument is, well, if you're doing things right and you're adhering to the codes of practice, then what's the problem with having having these sort of surveillance monitoring devices installed? And why wouldn't you want to have sprinklers installed in an in- industrial shed operation where animals are housed because it's not only protecting what are your profits, um, but it's also protecting the infrastructure and that if you have a sprinkler go off, you know, um, early in a fire situation, then it's going to save you money mm-hmm. as well as the public will be perhaps a little bit more compassionate knowing that you've done something to prevent further suffering yeah. on top of what they already endure. Absolutely. We're going to have to leave it there for the next program to come. Thank you so much to Sarah Davison and Lisa again for both of you for joining Freedom of Species today. If you'd like to contact Freedom of Species, please do on info at freedomofspecies.org. See you next week. And I'm going to take you out with a tune by R.O.P. Tom Petty, uh, but the tune is Won't Back Down and it's definitely something that our, um, our guests today are not doing. <laughs> so see you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.